Well, happy Pentecost Sunday. And uh, I am partially ashamed to say that since I grew up Baptist, I didn't even know that today was Pentecost Sunday until Friday when Pastor Rob uh, texted me. <laughs> so I did not prepare a Pentecost um, sermon for you guys, and I'm very sorry you guys can blame it on me being a repenting Baptist or whatever you'd like to, to blame that on, but <laughs> I do hope that what, that what God was able to, to, to help me share with you, that it would still be beneficial for you. Um, because there's a question that is in the minds of those who are at least a little familiar with the God of the Bible. And it is my honor to be able to wade through this question a little bit. It's not going to be exhaustive or complete, and it's, but it's merely going to scratch the surface of this question. It's a really hard question. But the Bible is not without answer. And this is the question. If God is good and loving, why is there evil or suffering in the world that he created? This is usually asked me by people who grew up in church but then turned away from the faith and became agnostic or atheist or something like that, or, or just turned away from the Bible in general. And a lot of them turned away because this question was not answered adequately. So I would like to explore this question a little bit with you. This is why I believe that there is suffering in the world, even though God created the world and he is holy, perfect, and good. So the first reason is because God loves us so much that he is not concerned with simply our happiness, but with something much, much more important. When you raise up a child, their immediate happiness is not your highest priority. You're raising them up to be good, wise, useful members of society. Why? Because you love them. You don't want them to be spoiled adults that no one can stand to be around, right? So you teach them how to share their toys, how to take a bath, how to say please and thank you, and how to later do other taxes. And all of these probably seem like torture to the child at the time. Nobody likes to pay their taxes, and it seems like a terrible injustice to a child when they are forced to share their things with others. In fact, you discipline your children if they refuse to share their toys. If your child doesn't listen and they run into a street, you might even spank them, not just because they disobeyed you, but also because it is very very dangerous what they did, and they must not do it again, because you love them so much. It's kind of the same how God deals with us. In Hebrews 12, 4 through 8 and 11, it, it, he says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addressed you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when he when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God knows what we do not know and that we cannot even begin to grasp the knowledge of God, just like a child doesn't see the danger in playing in the street. So God sometimes disciplines us to teach us what we cannot otherwise or sometimes refuse to understand. One reason that we have such a hard time with this question in seeing how God, who is good and is known as love, can allow such evil into the world is because we don't really understand what good and love truly mean. 
Now, from a logical standpoint, if God, who is perfect and created everything, is love, then shouldn't it stand that we should take the definition of love and good from him rather than from us? Because we are fallen, not by nature good and loving. Since we are imperfect and, perfect and therefore our love is imperfect, shouldn't we submit our definition in view of God's love to his definition? If God is perfect, then his love is perfect. But this isn't what people do, is it? It's kind of like two people who are looking at a white object. One person has sunglasses on, the other person does not. The person without sunglasses would look at the object and say, wow, that's a really pretty white object. But because the other person has sunglasses on, they say, well, actually, it's not white, it's brown. And the word that, we, that the world calls good and loving is actually kindness instead, most oftentimes. Kindness would rather see the object not suffer than for it to endure to a better end. Sure, it is kind for people to euthanize a sick animal so that it wouldn't suffer. But it would be loving for us to care for the animal and to endure with it until it recovers or does die. And here's another example. My sister-in-law, Jessica, and Locke were getting gifts for Mother's Day. So they went to the store, and Jessica sat down with Locke and said, Okay, here's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be getting gifts for other people. We're not looking for things that we would like to buy. So we're here to get gifts for others. So they walk into the store, and once they walk in there, Locke sees a shelf of shiny new toy cars. And one of them starts speaking to Locke and saying, you want me? We will have such wonderful times of play. And Locke heard is like, whoa, you're right. We, it would be so wonderful if I could get this car. He visions dancing in the meadows with, uh, hand in hand with this, with this little car. And it just, it's, it's, so, it's going to be so beautiful. It's going to make his entire life meaningful if he has this car. So he goes up to his mom and says, Mom, I found the car that would make my life so beautiful. May I please have it? And Jessica said, no. We are here to get gifts for other people, not for stuff for ourselves. Well, Locke would have none of it. So he freaks out and he starts melting down. He tells the entire store about this car and how it would make his life and how his mother so, meaning, so, so meanfully um, would not allow him to have this car. So a, a, a nice older gentleman comes up and says, Locke, or he didn't know his name, sorry. So he says, young boy, what, what is the problem? And so Locke told him about this car. And the, man, the gentleman walked away. Well, later on, as Jessica and Locke are continuing to shop for Mother's Day, um, the gentleman comes up again holding a beautiful yellow car for Locke, and he gives it to him. And that man showed kindness by giving Locke what he wanted. But Mom showed love by refusing to give him what he wanted so that he could learn something much, much more important, the joy of giving gifts to other people. In this case, the, the kindness of that man was actually more harmful in the long run than Locke's suffering at that moment. And he learned that he could throw a fit and someone else might give him what his mother refused to give him. And he missed out on the joy of giving to others. And what we think, we think that the world would be kinder if there was no suffering at all. Kind of like how a child might wish there would be a better, or he might think that a, the world would be better without vegetables. 
But because something is unpleasant, we might think that it is bad and that the world would be better off without it. However, that is not always the case. There is a good of a less exciting type in eating vegetables. In fact, it is one of more valuable, of much more valuable goods than the candy that the child would rather eat. And that's kind of similar as to why evil and suffering are allowed to remain. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compassion, comparison. And as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And Paul, as we learned when we studied the book of Acts, suffered tremendously. However, he understood that it was not meaningless. That somehow, some way, God was working it all together to prepare for him an eternal weight of glory. And God, some, God told something similar to the Israelites as they were preparing to go to Canaan. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3 says, The whole commandment that I commanded you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know that what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And this is the important part here. And he humbled you and let you hunger and then fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might, take, but that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but, by, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay. So we see that, God's will, that God will sometimes use suffering, or really trials in our lives, to bring about a better result in us. A bit like a goldsmith will, will heat gold to an unbearable amount so that the impurities are burned out and the gold is made pure. And C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, sums this up. This, this point up pretty well. It says, when Christianity says that God loves man, it means that God loves man. Not that he has some disinterested because really indifferent concern for our welfare, but that in awful and surprising truth, we are the objects of his love. You asked for a loving God, you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked, the Lord of terrible aspect, in present, is present, not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself, the love that made the worlds persistent as the artist's love for his work and despotic as a man's love for a dog, provident and venerable as a father's love for a child, jealous inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. That is, whether we like it or not, God intends to give us what we need, not what we think we want. Once more, we are embarrassed by the intolerable compliment, by too much love, not too little. This does beg the question, why do we need to be disciplined like this by God? The second reason there's so much suffering is us. We are the main cause of suffering and evil in this world. The world did not always look like it does now. We are living in a world that is groaning beneath our feet. But that's not how it started. Genesis 1.31 says, And God saw everything that he made, and behold, 
It was very good. So it started out as good, but what happened? Man found out that there was something that God was holding back from him. And he wanted to know what it was that God was denying him. So he did what God told him not to do and learned what God was holding back from him. And it was sin. At first, this new concept of something that God was withholding from a man seemed like it was a good thing that God would not allow him to have. But in reality, it was the opposite. Because sin, evil, and suffering are by nature parasitic. So it cannot exist without good. We would have no idea about evil if we did not know what good was. It's a little like rust. It cannot exist without metal. No one, has a car, no one who has a car gets excited about seeing rust on their car. They're not, they don't go showing all their friends like, hey, guess what? I had just a car before, but now I have a car and there's rust on here too. No one's excited about having something extra in that. By a man doubting God's goodness in that situation and disobeying God and acting upon that doubt, evil was found by a man. But we were never designed to carry that responsibility. God already knew evil, but by nature he is good and holy. So he cannot, by nature, do the evil that he knows of. However, man was designed by God for another purpose. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. We were not designed to deal with evil. And now that we do know evil, do evil, we have made such a mess of things. Not only did this affect us, but this also affected the whole part of God's creation. And then Genesis 3, 16 through 19 spells out the consequences of our sin. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and you, to dust you will return. So by ch our choosing to follow our own way rather than God's, we are responsible for the fallout. This sort of thing is repeated all throughout Scripture. If you look at any of the stories of the Bible, you will never, with the exception of Jesus, find someone who lived completely righteously. Every one of them sins. David, a man after God's own heart, messed up terribly. Moses killed an Egyptian. Samuel's kids were just awful. All of the people in the Bible, except Jesus, are messed up. So all people are evil and sinful. In Romans 3, Paul echoes the words of Ecclesiastes by saying, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This means me, this means you. You could replace no one for I. I am not righteous, no, not I. I do not understand. I do not seek for God. I have turned aside. I have become worthless. I do not do good. Not even me. This is why it is men that God throws into hell, not sins. 
Jesus said, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles the person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. God does not send murder, lust, or covetousness, or envy, racism, or pride to hell. He sends those who choose those things instead of God to hell. With that in mind, aren't you glad that God has not removed evil from the world yet? I wouldn't be here if he did. However, God promises that he will rid the world of evil forever. Not only that, but we see God do this a couple of other times in the Bible, too. And I find it really, really interesting that people are so quick to question God because there is evil. But when God does wipe out evil, we cry foul. Think of the flood. Genesis 6, 5 through 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah did find favor in the eyes of the Lord. And in Sodom and Gomorrah also, Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50 say, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Canaanite conquest, a number of other instances, in all of them, while God shows incredible patience with the sinners, there does come a time when God's wrath comes. Like in Genesis 15, 13 through 16, when God promises Abraham that his children would inherit Canaan, but not till, until the inhabitants have had sufficient time to repent. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for sure that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in good old age. And then they will, shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet complete. But when people see God bring to justice the, to the evil to the world, they say that he is barbaric. What do you mean? Like, what do you want? Would you like evil to exist, or would you like and not to exist. You really can't have it both ways. I've had a few conversations with people about this, especially the conquest of, of Canaan, and most of them say that God is like a psychotic murderer because he commands the Israelites to clear out the land. However, if you look carefully, you will see that there were only a few cities that God commanded them to wipe out, and God had a purpose in that. The rest of them, God talks about driving them out. And when you read the accounts in Joshua, it seems like a lot of these cities were basically empty, like God had allowed the Canaanites to live there. And when they continued in their wicked ways, God drove them from the land and gave all that they had to his people. If you read the Bible in faith, 
I believe that you will see just how merciful God really is, even in traumatic times like that. And not only did God remove evil in the past, but God has promised to put an end to evil once and for all one day. Revelation 21, 1 through 8 says, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, and for the first for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell in them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as, as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated, who, he who was seated, seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to be to the thirsty, I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And here we come to one of the most terrifying thoughts that can ever be thought. God will rid the world of evil, and he has prepared a place for them. Hell. I've heard so many people object to this. How could a good God make a place like hell and send people there? Again, it is not kind by human standards to send people to hell. But I would contend that it is good according to God's standards. Would it be kind for God to look past the hatred that they have for him? I suppose it would be. But would it be good and loving for him to do so? No. And would it not, and it wouldn't work like you would think either. See, God is holy and we are unholy. So literally, we cannot stand in the presence of God because he is holy and we are unholy. We would be destroyed if people have spent their lives fighting against God because they refuse to submit to how God created this world, would it be loving for God to force them to be in his presence continually for eternity? No. If people have spent their... They've already decided that they love lust or murder or stuff or whatever else so much that they would reject God's gift of life... Would it be loving for God to remove that thing that they love and force them to be with him? It would be in their best interest, yes. But God gives them what they so desperately wanted at the cost of their own souls. Would it be good of God, however, to create a place that they could go to be away from the holiness of God and everything that would remind them of him? A place where they could still have all the evil that they so stubbornly held on to in life. I believe that it would be, and that place is hell. Now, isn't it great to know that God has created a place like that, a worst thing or place where all those who hated God could go to be away from him, the being that they hate the most. He limited how much evil there could be 
in the world when he established hell. He gave it boundaries. That is a great thing. That, that is as bad as it can ever get. It can never get any worse than that. So why evil and suffering? Let me ask you another question. What do you think your role is in the suffering world? At first, it sounds like a strange question in comparison to the first question. But I want to point out that we could use a, pers a perspective shift in this matter. Because when we think about the question of evil and suffering, most people focus on our, on, on our own suffering and then question God about his seeming unwillingness to do something about it. But what if we were to see that we could be his instruments to do something? to remove suffering and to combat evil. Instead of asking God, why is there still evil in the world? Why don't we ask God, what may I do to help out in this situation? See, God has done something to reduce suffering and to relieve any type of suffering. He sent his only son to die on a cross to reestablish his kingdom and institute the church the members of his kingdom, to be his representation to the crippled world. We have an opportunity and responsibility not to simply come to a worship service and be nice people throughout the week, but to be God's hands and feet to bring hope to a hopeless world. This does not mean that we will not suffer. On the contrary, if we expect to share in the glory of Christ, then we must expect to endure the suffering just as Christ did. Romans 8, 16 through 18. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings in this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. And 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14 says, Beloved, do not be surprised that, there, that the fiery trials, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the glory, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We have an opportunity to show God's love to others that we would not have if there was no suffering. Suffering can strip away the facade of this world and reveal the humbling truth of our own insufficiency. When people's eyes are open to that, then we have the opportunity to share who God really is. And don't let the opportunity go to waste. Dear Father,